Acts 18, verse 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man called Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Amen. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. About that time, there arose no little concern, disturbance concerning the way. This is Acts 19.23, the way. And I know, and I know you've heard this before, and I love this particular phrase, the way, and I love how Luke describes this. He's quoting Isaiah, and he's saying that they didn't go to the left, and they didn't go to the right. They knew that there was a middle way. There was a third way. There was this particular way that if you just stayed with Jesus Christ, there was this way. It's because Paul and the apostles and the disciples and the followers of Jesus were culture makers. That's what they were. They were culture makers. Their belief in Jesus confronted them, and as a result of this, they changed their culture, and they were the ones who made the difference in the world they lived in. So we're in the book of Acts, if you're not aware of this, and I see that there's a whole group of people here are brand new today, and so I just want to let you know we're in the book of Acts, 
and this has just been a great experience since the beginning of the year here. Next week is our final message as we come to the close of this particular series, and you're wondering how is it possible to be at the close of the series if we haven't covered the whole book of Acts? Well, that's all right, because we're not going to cover the whole book of Acts. We are going to return to the book of Acts at some other point. In fact, next week we, we go back to Acts chapter 12, which we haven't covered yet, so we jump to portion and we're coming back to Acts chapter 12, because Acts chapter 12 leads us perfectly into uh, Easter, which is coming up next weekend. Um, in fact, Friday night, next Friday, we're going to have an Easter service here. We're going to be exploring the Acts through the Gospels, and I encourage you to come and join us for that one hour, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. next Friday here, and then Sabbath morning, come at 9 o'clock, enjoy some refreshments, and then enjoy the worship as we go through Acts, uh, the Easter inside Acts, uh, next Sabbath as well. Um, but as you may recall, last Sabbath, last Sabbath, we talked about the culture makers, the elite. The culture makers, the elite. That was last Sabbath. It was really Paul's wheelhouse, the Apostle Paul's wheelhouse. He was in his stride. I mean, he was talking and preaching uh, at the epicenter of culture, at the epicenter of the philosophical world of Athens. And as I shared as well last week, he, he just got beaten up just before he went and presented there. Yet he was happy to do so because he was able to proclaim the gospel in that prison. So now he leaves Athens, having done these epic speeches, and he leaves Athens and he heads off to this new place, Corinth, that Kevin read for us in the scripture. But as he approaches Corinth, he decides that he wants to approach Corinth with an entirely different approach. And I want you to read this text with me. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can pull out the Pew Bibles. It's page 1054 in your Pew Bibles, but it's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And I just find this kind of interesting that he, he chose a different way to approach Corinth as he did in Athens, where he was kind of in his stride. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew how to speak to them because that was his world. But in Corinth... He felt, these people, they're different, and uh, I think I need to speak to them differently. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, pages 10, 54, 1054. And, and don't leave this passage, because we're going to come back to that particular page or near that page in a few seconds later. This is what it says there, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And I, Paul saying this, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, like he had just done in Athens, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's quite a, quite a contrast from Athens to Corinth here. Yes, entirely, entirely different this. I mean, this is where he's not coming with the great speeches of Athens. He's not coming quoting the old Greek prophets here and the poets here. He's not even mingling the truths of what he said, you believe this, and let me take your beliefs here, and let me just kind of like add a little bit of the gospel inside there. He's laying it all aside. In fact, let me give you an example of how he laid it all aside and proclaimed it in a way that was very uh, confrontational, but very culture-shifting. 
Again, in the, just a couple of pages over, page 1058, turn with me again to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Um, there was a famous prayer. Uh, so this is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. This is page 1058, so just four pages over. And I remember when uh, I was talking about the road to Damascus experience, and how I said that most likely Paul, Saul, who, was then, who then became Paul, every morning and evening he would have recited the Shema, the prayer. It would have said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? This is the prayer that every faithful Jew would have said, and this is what Saul would have said every morning and every evening. This is what they understood as deep theology, which is true. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, says this, Yet... For us, there is one God, the Father. He's reciting the Shema to them. From whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things and through whom we exist. I mean, he is saying, what? There, there is one God, the Father, and there is Jesus. And, and? Where did the end come from? And there is Jesus Christ, and they are together. This would have been the new Shema that he would have been reciting in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 here. So yes, he was changing the culture. He was making a new culture. He was a culture maker, and he was hot off the press there. Because for Paul, what he wanted for them is that they opened up their raw heart and felt the impact of the gospel in their heart. And they felt that the God that they worshipped, they had seen in this man, Jesus Christ, that although he had died, he had resurrected, which they couldn't fathom, was alive, and he as well is part of God. For they are the culture makers, the commoners. Now that's a pretty offensive term in England, by the way the culture makers, the commoners. That phrase would be really offensive in England. In fact, in England where you know, we try to pretend that there is no classes like upper class, middle class, and working class, but everybody knows that it really does exist. Uh, we, we try to say that there's a very expanding middle class, but, uh, but you can tell, you can tell uh, by your pedigree, by your vocabulary, you can tell by your postcode, you can tell by your family name, you can even tell by your school tie. I mean, you can tell uh, whether you are working class, middle class, or upper class. But I'm using the phrase culture makers, the commoners, as a reference to the marketing reality that Paul understood in the world that was in. Because, you see, Paul understood that the cities shaped the culture of the entire planet. He understood that the masses of people, all these people gathered together, they're going to change the entire world. So he said, I have to change the entire world. I need them to know about the way. And I'm going to preach the gospel so that they understand about the way. Now, we have to be really thankful to Luke and to Paul because historians say that their sketches through the books of Corinthians and, and other books as well, and Romans and this book of Acts as well, have given insights into the first century of this particular area here, much greater than anybody else. And so it's, it, it actually collaborates with so much of the archaeological findings, but it just gives you deep insights into what society is like. First century Corinth, this is where he went from Athens, he went to first century Corinth. 100,000 people living inside this town here. 
about 60,000 people coming to Boulder every single day, uh, so a little bit more than that. 100,000 people live inside uh, Corinth. One-third of them were slaves. Uh, they were Jews, a lot of Jews that lived there who were exiled from Rome, which was referred to as the eternal city. So eternal, they said, we don't want to have the Jews inside there, so they exiled them. They spoke probably at least a dozen languages taking place inside Corinth because it was a, a center that brought both the East and the West together inside there. Tons of wealth, very, very rich. And with the richness came lots of corruption as well and lots of sexual immorality and fornication. In fact, uh, a prostitute uh, in Corinthian history was often referred to as a, a Corinthian girl. A Corinthian girl basically was a phrase that meant they were a prostitute. It was that so common and tied together inside there. So when Paul goes to Corinth, he actually understands that. And his next city is actually Ephesus, just pops over the lake and goes over to Ephesus. You understand that he, he gets to the other shore. He understands the culture of these big epicenters, these cities, has a particular tone to them. In fact, over at Ephesus, they had a goddess that they worshipped called Artemis. She was the multi-breasted goddess of fertility. Uh, focus for a second here. Um, and uh, the, the, the gentleman, there was a story told about how 5,000 gentlemen actually castrated themselves and laid all their tackle down before her. Um, and, and so this is how, how serious they were uh, about worshipping uh, this particular person here. That's why that text that I read to you right at the beginning, that they were upset, there was a disturbance about the way, because something that Paul was saying about the culture was shifting. Something that was happening inside here was changing the culture. I mean, it's no surprise that the gospel is causing a commotion and even causes a riot to them. I know you're thinking to yourself, how could the gospel cause a riot? I mean, when was the last time you came to church, heard a sermon, and decided to go riot? So I've been thinking about this. Um, what could I say that would cause a riot? Oh my goodness, when I thought of that question, there were so many sentences that came to my head. I mean, it's not that hard to start a riot. Get on Facebook. It's so easy to start a riot. Just take Facebook and read it out loud. Mm -hmm. It's true. People are just like violent on Facebook. Uh, but if I just read it out loud now, this church would like psh, divide instantly. And people would take Nerf guns and put, I don't know, weird metal on the end of the bullets to like attack each other. Because we just, we become so antagonistic about things and it's not even about the gospel. So then I thought, how could the gospel cause you to cause a, a riot? Is there something about the gospel? And then I thought, maybe it's because we haven't heard the gospel. Maybe because we haven't understood what the gospel is asking us to change inside there. Well, Paul did. He said, look, he sent these disciples out there. He said to them, look, just teach them. Love God and love humanity. Just go and tell them that. And let's see if that turns the world upside down. Sure enough, it did. And in fact, it turned it so upside down that they realized they had to let go of their idols. But letting go of your idols is really hard, which is, uh, brings us to our very first question here. Um, our very first question this morning, our first recalibrate question is this. What does the culture shift look like? What does the culture shift look like? 
So when you look at Acts chapter 18, and you look at the whole story, uh, Brittany was alluding to in the kids' life there, and talking about the passion with the kids, saying to them, what is it that Jesus was calling you to, to go tell everybody about this? What is it that Acts, what Paul was trying to say through this entire story of arriving in Corinth there? It says this, it was an important city to arrive in, and Paul understood this so well. In fact, he chose this. Paul was a tent maker. He chose this because it was the Isothemian games were taking place. This is the games that were kind of like the uh, second largest games next to the Olympic games. And I think Paul chose this because he thought, well, you know what, if I go there, they're going to need tents. And uh, it's going to be good business. And so if I go there, I can make some tents. And if I can make some tents, then I can actually pay for the gospel to go forward because I can make a livelihood. So he did. He went out there, made some tents. And there are some theories that if you follow the games, you can follow Paul's journeys and the timing of all the games. You can follow where Paul went because he actually followed the business plan to be able to keep his living going so that he could keep the gospel going so that he could actually maintain himself inside there. Well, he went out there and preached in the gospel and he meets these two other tent makers, Aquila and Priscilla, who were forced out of Rome because they were Jews and they were tent makers and they become lifelong friends. And we will talk about them some other time when we get to the book of, Rome, uh, of uh, Romans, which is phenomenal. They become followers of the way. Silas and Timothy arrive and uh, as they join Paul, they bring some funds with them, and they give this to Paul, and Paul's like, well, if I have a bit of money now, I actually don't need to make some tents. I can just preach the gospel full-time, so he becomes a full-time pastor at this point here. And as he's doing this, he hears news of what's happening in his church in Thessalonica, and he starts to write the first Thessalonians. And it's phenomenal what he writes inside there. And he starts telling them, the church is doing so well. He writes to them, you guys are amazing. You have following the way. You're being faithful to this. And especially, he says, this particular verse in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. He says, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Right? Do you remember how when he walked into Athens last week? Do you remember when I mentioned this? And he saw it disturbed him. 73,000 different idols, different things that people were worshipping. Do you remember how now he's saying, man, you've turned away from idols to serve God. And here in the Corinthian city, he's like, you as well, you've got to face the idols in your life. This is what culture makers do. They make Jesus everything and they turn away from idols. Do we do that? I mean, do we really make Jesus everything? And that's what I believe a culture shift really looks like. I would love to admit that I always turn away from all my idols. Look, I love to give 100%, uh, 110% to my job. I really do. It's, it's not hard. I give a lot of energy and time. And there is no doubt at all that there are moments when I pause through my day and I think to myself, oh my goodness, uh, I've not seen my family at all today, or a few days have gone by and haven't seen my family or my kids. And I, at that moment, I pause and I think, oh, I think of my boys, and I think of my family, I think, oh, it's all right, I've got some time scheduled where I'm going to see them, and I'm looking forward to seeing them, so I'm planning that all, all that time. And as it comes to that moment, uh, I, that moment when I come home, I take the same drive and passion that I have for my work home at the same speed and pace that I have for my work, and, uh, and I arrive home and I apply it to their lives. They don't appreciate it in the same way. 
uh, because I'll walk in and I just, and you know, I'm, I'm missing them deeply. I'm missing them deeply. And I walk in and I'm like, how come the room's a mess? And I want the room cleaned up. And I, Becky and I have had this discussion where she said to me, especially Sundays, because uh, I get up Sunday morning and I think this is the perfect day. Wash everything, clean everything, prepare everything, get the house ready for the whole week. Like, this is the day, man. It's going to be fun. And let's do this from the morning we get up, like, until dusk, or maybe until 1 a.m. Let's just get it done. And it's going to be so much fun. To which my boys don't think that that's a fun day. I have no idea uh, why they don't think that's a fun day. And Becky says to me, you know, that's not actually what they're looking for from their father, right? Because if you've taken all the other time away, what you need is to be able to engage in a different way with them. But I'm like, well... They should clean their rooms in the week. They should do all their stuff. And so I'm, I'm battling with them all the time about this. And I'm battling with Becky about this all the time. And so the difficulty is that I'm just battling back and forth because I'm very patient with the church. You have no idea how patient I am with you. Uh -huh. You're thinking, he's not patient with us. Oh, no, I'm patient with you. You have no idea how patient I am with you. Uh, but I'm not patient with my family. And this is a problem. I just do it to myself. So what I do is, I take one idol away, and I trade it for another. It's called idol trading. I know you're thinking idol like the other I-D-L-E. No, no, idol trading. It's not like I'm just fiddling my thumbs. It's idol trading. It's the art of pretending that we've actually grown that we actually, what we've done is we just swapped sins for something else. Um, it's the art of pretending that we're changing, but what we're doing is we're just putting on new layers of makeup on top of old layers of makeup. It's kind of cakey and disgusting. It's the art of pretending that we are receptive to hearing when in fact we are backing away all the time from Jesus saying we don't have time for this. You see, to make Jesus everything, you actually have to let him lead. And it's very difficult, because on that Sunday morning, if I get up and I begin with Jesus, I actually change my mindset. But what I usually do is I get up and I begin with my to-do list. And my to-do list is brilliant. It's just, it's, it's glorious. All the things that I learned, you know, pull this, do this, do this, but it's not healthy. But if I begin with Jesus and I start with him, it's different because on those days, those days are culture-making days. You understand? You need to start creating more culture-making days in your life. So we go back to Paul and we ask ourselves, Paul, did you understand what the church was supposed to look like? How it was supposed to look? And he's like, well, I didn't know what church was supposed to look like. Jesus didn't give me like a, a little code and say, this is what church is supposed to look like. It starts at this time, it ends at this time. So I know there are people who believe that it does that, but there's no code about that. Paul was just happy to just be focused on Jesus. This week, all the pastors were pulled together uh, by the conference head office, by our head office, and uh, we met at Glacier View Ranch up at the mountain there, and uh, on Sunday evening to Wednesday, our president pulled us all together with uh, training. So on Tuesday evening, our president, Ed Barnett, uh, asked us as church pastors, uh, just how would we describe a healthy church? And I love that phrase, a healthy church, because it's a shift. 
in thinking about metrics of what church is. Usually when you think of church and when you're deciding what is the metric of church, you don't use the term healthy, you just say, you know, what's a successful church and, uh, and there usually is the ABC of what they think it is. But he said, no, let's talk about what a healthy church is. And, and all the pastors started dreaming about it and sharing from their experiences and, and stories of what they had and the list became really, really long about what a healthy church is. And then he, he asked us, you know, to be able to break this list down and gave us until Friday to return the list to him, all the pastors, to write back and say, if you broke this list down from five to ten ideas, what would it be? So I wrote mine yesterday and sent it back to him. But here's the thing. Um, how would we describe a local healthy church? How would we do this? This is what Paul faced back at the start of the church. There was no blueprint to do this. The list just grew rapidly about him. So what is a healthy church? Here at Boulder... Uh, we have this phrase that we actually have on our website and this phrase that we have kind of undergird in this, and we are committed to creating places for people to connect with God. That's effectively what we do here. We create places for people to connect with God. And with that idea, which we believe is birthed from the Bible, uh, we take this and we say, well, how do we do this with our elders and with our vision board and with all our ministries, creating places that people can connect with God? That's what we've got to do here. And we translated this all the way through and then, then broken all the way down to two words, which we say every single week as we end our services here, live love, right? Live love. And the thing is, is that it's so easy to say live love and sometimes just to miss how deep it is to say live love. I mean, it's beautiful to see in action, looking after each other, caring after each other, serving each other. And Paul understood this with his church in Thessalonica. He said, but suddenly he just said, I don't know, there's, there's days when I just feel kind of like broken down. And Jesus says to him, I understand this. So he gives him this incredible vision. He says to him, don't give up. Keep on preaching this. I have a good word of comfort for you. Yet sometimes you have to ask yourself, is that enough? Which brings us to question number two. Why do, why do the failures wash out the successes. Anybody ever suffer from that? Where your failures wash out your successes? No? One of you. Two. Let's, okay, let's try this again. How many of you experience that your failures wash out your successes? Okay, a few more of you are more honest. All right, good. It's like, I, am I the only one who feels this way? <laughs> Paul gets the wind knocked out of him and he admitted in the Bible. And you guys are like, no, not me. I just sail through all my failures. They never affect me because I'm invincible. Mm -hmm. Go see a therapist. Um, <laughs> he does, he does. He says he's so taken back by the rejection of people and he gets really upset with this. Even though, even though the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, right, in the Bible in Acts chapter 18, he becomes a follower of the way. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. It's amazing, right? And it says that also many Corinthians, they follow Jesus. He's like, it's amazing. The culture's changing. But yet, one person gets upset with Paul and suddenly he's like, ah, the world's ending. It's just failing here. I don't know if I can make this. And it stirs the pot up. And all the joys and all the blessings are gone. So I had a brief moment like that this week. Just a, a little moment. I mean... It was like a smidgen. It was like, it was like, it lasted just like, I mean, it's not even worth mentioning, but I'm just going to mention it just like really quickly. You know, because, you know, it's just so small. I'm sitting at these meetings having lunch, and another pastor 
joins me at the table to have lunch. And so this pastor says, hey, I know, I know some of your church members. I said, oh, that's nice. Good people. Because he mentioned their names to me. You know, and I said, that's great. He said, yeah, their parents go to my church and and then some of the other people, I just know them because, you know, they're much older. I've known them for many years. I said, yeah, nice people. They're good people. He said, yeah, you know, they're not happy at your church. You're making a lot of changes there, and uh, they're just not really happy with you. I said, oh, that's nice. Good, good people. No, I didn't say that. I said, I said, I said well... Uh, I guess, I guess that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do I do with that now? And then he finished eating and he left. I was like, hmm, bye. Uh, I mean, what do, you, what do you do with that kind of stuff? I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obviously go visit these people because they're here right now. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I was sad, I was upset, and, you know, in that moment, inside there, and, and things are going on in church, and there's lots of changes taking place in church, and, and here, just FYI, just FYI, there's many more changes coming. Okay, all right, so, uh, I, but, but in, that, in that thing, it's a fleeting moment, right? And in that fleeting moment, I forgot, I forgot, just in that fleeting moment, because this was on Monday night, I forgot the week before. I forgot the week before that the Sabbath before, in the afternoon, I sat down with Keith and Lana, and, uh, and we had spoke at the life group. I'd forgotten that we had spoken at that life group with Keith and Lana, and they had shared the passion of their life group that they were creating, and the idea that we should maybe on the third Sabbath start this idea of creating a life group that actually where we start to know each other. Instead of just coming to church and just greeting each other and pretending that we know each other, we should get together and share stories about our lives. We should start to become a community that really knows what's going on with each other's lives. Not just know each other on Facebook, but actually know each other, like really what's going on. I mean, brilliant, brilliant stuff and deep relationships. For a fleeting moment, I just forgot that Aaron and Dre were sharing their vision for this church, not only about the receiving blessings that they get from this church, but the blessings that they could share with the time and resources and energy and the vision they have for this church that they want to do further in this community and communities further. For a fleeting moment, I forgot Andy and Danae, who said, you know what, we could open up our home, and our home could be the home that actually Michelle and Bobby, Michelle and Bobby could actually have their baby shower at, and that's going to be great, and we're going to all go to Andy and Danae's house so we can celebrate Michelle and Bobby's new baby coming along and said, yeah, let's just do this and let's actually do ministry together. And I had forgotten that I had this conversation with Andy and Danae. For that fleeting moment, I had forgotten that Connie and Virginia and Linda were all surrounded by prayer with people contacting and emailing and people turning up and people visiting and people saying, we care and we love. And for a fleeting moment, I'd forgotten the 70-plus leaders who pulled together entire church. No, for a fleeting moment, I was really upset about these three people who were really upset about the changes. Isn't it interesting how we can just let all the blessings just be washed away by three people who didn't have the courage to come and speak? I mean, it's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, over there. Jesus is doing so many amazing things with other people in this church. Let's continue focusing on the blessings that God is doing inside here 
The problem is that it's so easy to allow something to hit you when good things are happening. This is why Jesus said to Paul, go on speaking and do not be silent. Acts chapter 18, verse 9. I take that verse and I'm just kind of like, man, I want to print it, not in Microsoft Word because it's an evil program, but in pages. Not even in Word art, just in pages. Beautiful. I want to print it large, go on speaking, and do not be silent. And if we do, we will become culture makers. So our final question this morning, question number three. What culture shift do we need to make here at Boulder? What culture shift do we need to make here at Boulder? Here's the thing about culture makers, right? Paul did not go to the city to have them overthrow the government. I know some of you are like, I'm pretty sure that's what he did. No. Paul did not go to the city there to protest injustice in the world. Paul did not go there to solve every economic crisis. Paul did not go there to the city to change the policies of operation. Paul went into the city to show them the way spoken of by Isaiah the prophet. That is neither left, neither right. But there is a third way, and it is a way found in Jesus Christ. And that to know Jesus is to accept that Jesus will change you. And when you are chained, you turn around and change all those around you, and you become a culture maker. The more you change, the more the culture around you shifts. Easy? No. <laughs> really, really hard. Because the change that Paul is referring to took him through the road to Damascus experience that we talked about, right? Because the change that Paul is referring to, it's going to confront all your values and priorities, because the change that Paul is referring to is not an outside kind of veneer thing, but actually your heart and your mind, because the change that Paul is referring to is about all those idols, all those idols that we have. And here's the thing, our idols can be our work, it can be our family, it can be our beauty and our strength, it can be our education, it can be our church. Anything that you place above staying connected to Jesus Christ. Anything that you make a priority above staying connected with Jesus Christ. So look, Easter's coming up this week. And it's a sacred time. And um, it's a sacred week. You should be using it as a week of preparation, of recommitment to your life with God. Um, I'm going to call you to a deep challenge next Sabbath. I'm going to try and wrestle through myself with the, the question of why. Why Jesus chose not only to die on the cross, but to rest in that silence and to resurrect. I mean, if you're going to save the world, why not just die and resurrect 10 seconds later? I mean, just get it done with. I mean, why the rest and why the silence? And what does it speak to in our lives? Because there are moments that we all experience silence, deafening silence. So I want to challenge you this week to begin, I mean, just begin every morning with Jesus. I mean, just, just try every morning with Jesus. Just like carve it out. Make the commitment one week. I'm not asking for 40 days. I'm not asking for an entire year. Just one week. Carve every morning with Jesus. Give your day to Jesus. Just say to him, look, I'm going to give you, Jesus, my friends and my family, my colleagues, my school, my work, my life. I'm going to give you space to talk to you. And let the promise of Jesus that he gave to Paul, 
will be the promise for you. Because this is what it says in Acts 18.10. For I, he said this to Paul, right? He said, look, be courageous, be kind, be amazing. God's with you. And then he says to them in Corinth, for I have many in this who are my people. My people. I want to be his people, right? I want you to be his people too. So I'm going to ask you to join me in that prayer and to be his people. You want to be his people? Try it this week. Just open the word of God, either do the daily walk, open the word of God, read the text yourself, but pray with him. I mean, don't do a formal prayer, just talk to him about your day and say, God, today, I give you my life, I give you the people I interact with, may you work through me, and I feel your presence, and I'll see you next Sabbath, and let's see what he does in your life, because if we are changed, man, we will change the world. We become the culture makers.